Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. So today I'm starting a series called Classic Sermon Series. And uh, essentially, I was at a um, New Year's Eve service at the church my wife grew up in, in Tifton, Georgia. And uh, somewhere during the service, uh, this thought came into my head about how powerful a lot of the old school sermons were. And so I started to just research and, and try to find out, okay, what were the most powerful sermons? Of course, I was doing it in the middle of a Christmas Eve service, so I'm sure everybody around me thought I was just playing Pokemon or something on my phone. But nevertheless, um, I, I, I started to research this, and for weeks and weeks... It was just um, weeks and weeks. It was just Christmas. Uh, so for, for, for several days, it just consumed me. What, what, what has God done in the past through messages that, that we need today? And I've, I've tried to pare it down to a handful. So over the next four, five, six weeks, maybe seven, what I want to do is I want to present to you these, these solid biblical messages in hopes of doing a couple of things. One... They were, they've been so powerful that hopefully God will speak the same way to us as He has in the past through these. But two, I want to introduce you uh, to some of the preachers of old. Now, their styles are radically different. Their, um, their, their time frame is radically different. For instance, the one today I'm starting with is called Payday Sunday. Uh, excuse me, Payday Someday. And um, you should know that, that the shortest I've found this, just checking... The shortest I've found this, sorry, I had this, this moment of thought that was scary. Um, if you're a guest with us today, you have no idea what, I, what I'm talking about, but trust me, I, it was a good thing. Yeah, TMI. Gosh, I am so stinking ADD, it's not even funny. So, the shortest I've found this is 55 minutes. The average is an hour and 15 minutes. But, but I've discovered something else. The, the preacher of today, R.G. Lee, was born on November uh, 4th, I believe it was, 1886. And so in his early years in ministry, he preached Payday Someday for the first time in 1919. Believe me when I tell you, verbiage is different then than it is today. Um, uh, illustrations are different then than it is today. And so there's so much difference and there's so much change. The, the struggle that I had was, how, how do I capture the power of these messages? But also, how do I faithfully preach the text the way they did, but in a way that we can hear it? So here, here's what I landed on. I'm not going to preach verbatim. I'm going to start verbatim, and then I'm going to take the messy middle, and I'm going to do my own thing following his outline, and then we're going to end up where he ends up. Is that all right? But I'm going to preach it in the tone and in the, so you can get a sense of what it would be like if R.G. Lee were standing here today. Interestingly enough, he died in 17, excuse me, 17, he died in 1976. He preached this message, R.G. Lee, at First Baptist Church in 1975. He died at 91 years old. And so if you do the math, it was... Um, just just, uh, uh, just, an amazing ministry. So R.G. Lee, was, well, I told you, was born in 1886. 
He went to college and graduated as a scholar, knowing the Latin language inside and out. He was magnum cum laude, and his first pastor, it was First Baptist Church of New Orleans, Louisiana. He was there for three years. Then he moved to a church for just a few years in South Carolina, and then he wound up at the great Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He was a pastor there for 33 years, and under his leadership, the church grew by thousands, and there were thousands upon thousands that came to faith in Christ through his ministry and through his leadership. He then retired and was an itinerant evangelist for about 19 years, and through his entire ministry, he preached this particular message, Payday Someday, 1,275 times as there's a couple different numbers out there, but that's the number that I'm going to settle with. So you can do two things. You can go to our Facebook page, and our, you can go to our Facebook page. You can get a, an idea. Don't do it now. I know, I know. But you can, you can read all about who he was. And then also, I posted a link to this actual sermon from his lips. You will probably enjoy that. So let me start the way he started. And then you will quickly realize why I'm not just going to do it verbatim for the whole thing. Ready? Payday, someday. I introduce to you Naboth. Naboth was a devout Israelite who lived in the town of Jezreel. Naboth was a good man. By the way, turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. Naboth was a good man. He abhorred that which is evil. He clave to that which is good. He would not dilute the stringency of his personal piety for any profit in money. He would not change his heavenly principles for loose expediencies. And this good man who loved God, his family, and his nation had, very little, had a very little vineyard which was close by the summer palace of Ahab the king. A palace unique in its splendor as the first palace inlaid with ivory. This little vineyard had come to Naboth as a cherished inheritance from his forefathers. And all of it was dear to his heart. I introduce to you Ahab the vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation, the worst of Israel's kings. King Ahab had command of a nation's wealth and a nation's army, but he had no command of his lust or appetites. Ahab wore rich robes, but he had a sinning and a wicked and troubled heart beneath him. He ate the finest food the world could supply, and this food was served to him in dishes splendid by servants obedient to his every beck and nod. But he had a starved soul. He lived in palaces, sumptuous within and without, yet he tormented himself for one bit of land more. Ahab was a king with a throne and a crown and a scepter, yet he lived nearly all his life under the thumb of a wicked woman, a tool in her hands. Ahab pilloried himself in the contempt of all God-fearing men as a mean and selfish rascal who was the curse of his country. The Bible introduces him to us in words more appropriate than these when it says, But there was none like Ahab which did sell himself to work with wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up, and he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. 
I introduce to you Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of Tyre, and wife of Ahab, the king of Israel. A king's daughter and a king's wife, the evil genius at once of her dynasty and of her country. Infinitely more daring and reckless was she in her wickedness than was her wicked husband. Masterful, indomitable, uh, in, 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 indomitable, implacable, a devout worshipable of Baal. She hated anyone and everyone who spoke against or refused to worship her pagan god. As blunt in her wickedness and as brazen in her lewdness was she as Cleopatra, fair sorceress of the Nile. She had all the subtle and successful scheming of Lady Macbeth, all the adulterous desire and treachery of Potiphar's wife, all the boldness of Mary, Queen of Scots, all the cruelty and whimsical imperiousness of Catherine of Russia, all the devilish infamy of Madame Pompadour, and doubtless all the fascination of personality of a Josephine of France. Most of that which is bad in all evil women, woman is found, is, has found expression through his painted viper of Israel. She had that which endowed of nature, which a good woman ought always to dedicate to the service of her day and generation. But alas, this idolatrous woman of an idolatrous king and an idolatrous people engaging with her maidens in worship to Astera, the personification of the most forbidding obscenity, uncleanliness, and sensuality became the evil genius who wrought wreck, brought blight, and devised death. She was the beautiful and malicious Adar coiled upon the throne of the nation. I introduce to you Elijah, the Tishabite, prophet of God at a time when tens of thousands of people had forsaken God's covenant, thrown down God's altars, slain God's prophets with the sword. The prophet, knowing much of the glorious past of the now apostate nation, must have been filled with horror when he learned of the rank heathenism, fierce cruelties, and reeking licentiousness of Ahab's idolatrous capital. Holy anger burned within him like an unquenchable, vesivious... He wore the roughest kinds of clothes, but he had underneath those clothes a righteous and courageous heart. He ate bird's food and widow's fare, but he was a great physical and spiritual athlete. He was God's tall cedar that wrestled with the paganistic cyclones of his day without bending or breaking. He was God's granite wall that stood up and out against the rising tides of the apostasy of his day. Though much alone, he was sometimes attended by the invisible hosts of God. He grieved only when God... God's cause seemed tottering. He passed from earth without dying into celestial glory. Everywhere courage is admired and manhood honored and service appreciated. He is honored as one of earth's greatest heroes and one of heaven's greatest saints. He was a seer who saw gladly. He was a great heart who felt deeply. He was a hero who dared valiantly. And now with the introduction of these four characters, Naboth, the devout Jezreelite, Ahab, the vile human toad who squatted befoulingly on the throne of a nation, Jezebel, the beautiful Adar beside the toad, and Elijah, the prophet of the living God, I bring to you the tragedy of payday someday. And the first scene of this tragedy of payday someday is a real estate request. <sighs> Imagine one hour and 15 minutes... Would that be tough? So, 1 Kings, chapter 21. 1 Kings, chapter 21. This is the story of these four characters. But it's ultimately the story of God. It's the story 
of news that we don't want to hear, and our culture is undoubtedly highly intolerable of hearing. In fact, the accusation, if you did not know that I was preaching a message that was already preached, you would accuse me of being harsh and hard and judgmental. Because truly, the message out of this text is not good news for those who reject God. In fact, it is a guarantee, it is a promise, it is an unshakable fact that is written in the fabric of the universe that there will be payday someday. But to those who are followers of Jesus, there is great comfort in this because it's a reminder of not only the goodness of God, but also the justice of God. And those of us who know Christ Jesus have no problem because we know that the God that we speak of here is not a two-faced God. He is a, singu- he is a God who is singular in focus and singular in mind. And it's not either He is just or He is loving. It is He is just and loving. And so in 1 Kings chapter 21, the scripture tells us, Sometimes later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to a palace of Abraham, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it was close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard. If you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. So we have Naboth, and Naboth is... Just a common, ordinary man. And his vineyard happens to be next to Ahab's summer palace. Now the vineyard, you have to understand, was, was on his plot of ground that was passed down from his father, from his grandfather, from his grandfather's father, and one day Naboth would pass it down to his own children. It wasn't just a piece of land. It was his inheritance. It was, in a way, his identity. And so when the request came for him to give or to sell this land or to trade the land, he could not because of what the property meant to him, because it would be... It would be um, um, uh, it would be betraying his sacred trust as the, the, the current owner who would then pass along the heritage of his family. But it was beyond that. Certainly he remembered walking as a child with his grandfather through the vineyard, pruning and, and, and sampling and, and, and having conversation about all things about life. Certainly he remembered the, the times that his father had taught him about, about the different uh, 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 things that God had spoken and, and, and raised him up. And, and he no doubt had that same experience with his own sons and knew that one day his sons would be having those same conversations with his future grandchildren. But it wasn't that reason alone that he refused to sell. He didn't sell because he couldn't sell. And he couldn't trade because in the Scripture, in Numbers, and I believe also in Deuteronomy, we have a command from God that says that God is the owner of the property. And he gives it to people, he gives it to his children, and the strict command of, you may never sell. And so by keeping his property, he was worshiping his God, which is partly why Jezebel was so angry. Because Jezebel hated anything of God. And so Ahab said to Naboth, I will pay you a fair price. You simply name it. I will trade you a garden. And the answer was simply, no. So the next picture we have is 
Ahab going back to his castle, back to his, his home. In verse 4, he, Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Imagine this picture. You have the king of Israel. He walks into his palace and his servants are there at his beck and call. He has drivers and he has people who take care of his, his, cat, his, uh, his horses. And he has people who dust and he has butlers and servants. And he walks in and they know something's up because they can see it on his face. It's about lunchtime and they say, sir, your meal is ready. And yet he walks right by them and goes up to his room. He lays down, face down on his bed and begins to pout. He puffs his lip out. He is sulking. He is whining. He is moaning. And his servants, knowing something's up, decide they would bring him food in bed. And when they get up there, he says, go, get away from me. I want nothing. My heart is broken. I am crushed. My life is over. He is a king acting like a child. He is a, he is a man of great wealth pouting because he can't have this tiny little vineyard next to his summer home. He is certainly not acting as if he needs to be acting. And isn't it amazing how so often in history, great men and great women fall because of silly things like this. I was watching a special the other night on Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Now, I hate to bring up a sore subject, but did anybody see that by any chance? Isn't it, isn't it fascinating how the President of the United States, his downfall in that particular instance was over an intern? And if, and, and if you could go back and you could see that whole story, you'll, real, you'll realize how silly that was. But isn't it the way that kings and princes and people who seem to have everything often are? They decide that they're above the law. They decide they want something that, that, that is simply uh, uh, just because they want it and they feel they are owed it and they feel they deserve it. Ahab was in that position. So sulking in his bed, his wife Jezreel comes to his room. And the next scene that we have in verse 5, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And then in verse 6, he answered her, and no doubt he was whining, Because I went and I've tried to buy the land and he won't give it to me. And, I just... and so this king, acting like a child, is then addressed by his wife. Verse 7, Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up, and I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember, Jezebel is a wicked woman. She defines wicked so much so that when we talk about a wicked woman, we often will use the name, what? Jezebel. We often, when we're talking uh, uh, about spiritual things, we'll say something like, that is a Jezebel spirit. She is so foul, she is so wicked, and yet she controls the kingdom. Now these are R.G. Lee's words, not mine. But woe to a man who is controlled by a wicked woman. And I dare say there are quite a few men controlled by a wicked woman. A wicked woman will destroy a man every single time. Now, don't get me wrong, a wicked man can destroy a woman 
just as well. But in this story, it happens to be that this man, this king, is not really king. He's simply a puppet for his wife because she was the daughter of a king. Now she was the wife of a king and there was something inside of her that made her want to control and to lead and to be the one in charge. And time after time again, Ahab simply did what his wicked wife said to do. So you've got the scene, right? Ahab is on his bed, pouting. His wife opens up and probably condescending, probably, uh, probably in a way that he was familiar with. She said, don't you worry about that. I'll take care of getting the land for you. And in the very next scene, she goes and she writes a letter in his name. She writes a letter in the king's name and sends it to the nobles in the town where the, where the vineyard is. And the letter says this, Proclaim this day a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So her wicked plan is this. She sends a letter to the nobles and says, We're setting Naboth up to die. The charge is going to be blaspheme against God and blaspheme against the king. Now the irony of this is that Naboth was neither. Naboth was faithful to God. More faithful than Ahab, certainly more faithful than Jezebel. And Naboth certainly did not blaspheme the king. He was honest with the king. King, I cannot defame my God in order to give you what you want. But there was no disrespect there. There was no blaspheme. There was nothing out of ordinary. In fact, he should be praised as courageous and yet truthful. But instead, the letter was meant to set him up. So perhaps that morning when the decree went out that there was a fast and that Naboth was going to be sitting at the table, Naboth knew something was up. He knew that there was, there was some trouble brewing. There's no doubt that when his wife asked him, Honey, what, was, what did King Ahab want? Oh, he wanted my vineyard, but don't worry. I'm not going to give him the inheritance. She probably uh, uh, was a little bit nervous and he most likely calmed her fears and he most likely told his children, it's okay, daddy will be back in just a little while. There's nothing, pro no problem here because I've done nothing wrong. He goes to the fast, he sits at the table, and then halfway through the two scoundrels speak up. And it was instant, just, or it was not justice, it was instant tragedy. The two scoundrels spoke up and the crowd arose, dragged him out into the street, and began to pelt him with stones. Now, I won't describe for you the scene that R.G. Lee described for you, but there were ribs that were sticking out, having been stuck, uh, having been dipped in a, in a bowl of paint. His, his head and his skull would have been crushed, and his eyeballs would have bulged out, because I want you to think of how brutal being stoned is. To be stoned, me, not that kind of stoned, to be stoned with, with, with a mob is for them to grab giant rocks and to throw them, to pelt the person with them to where they were totally crushed and the object was killing by pain and by suffering. And so with each blow of each stone, he died one inch at a time until finally he had, he had his... His body spread all over the ground. A disgusting scene. But then, those same people went and grabbed his children. 
We know this because the Scripture tells us in 2 Kings that his sons died as well. Why would his sons die? Because if he died, the land would, as an inheritance, would what? It would go to his sons. But Ahab wanted the land, and so Jezebel said, Kill him and everybody who would inherit the land. Because by law, if there were no more persons to inherit the land, it would then go to the king. And so in one day... Naboth lost his life and his sons lost their life and their blood cried out to the God of heaven. As soon as word got back to Jezebel, by the way, the scripture tells us that after the deed was done, they sent word not to Ahab, but to Jezebel. Now this was a letter from the king, but they knew that the king didn't rule the, 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 the palace. They knew that Jezebel was behind everything that was being done. So they sent word back to Jezebel. And the Bible says that Jezebel went into, uh, uh, verse 15, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite that had refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive, but dead." Verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and he went down to take possession of the vineyard. Can you imagine how cowardly this man you must have been? Can you imagine how soft, how weak of a leader? Can you imagine how wicked his heart must have been that he rejoiced in the death of a man and his sons based on the forged letter from his wife simply so that he could have a tiny piece of land to make a vegetable garden in. Can you imagine how deranged, how vile, how wicked, how, how foul this man must have been? But could you imagine how much greater his wicked wife must have been? For them to hatch this plan with no regard for these little children. With no regard for the wife who's now a widow who now has no legal protection at all because her family has been stoned. They did not care an ounce for the family. All they wanted was what they wanted and they got it. And so immediately Ahab called his driver and said, Jehu! Grab the horses. Grab the chariot. Let's go look at my new plot of land. I'm going to build a vegetable garden. And so Jehu, known to be the fastest rider, the fastest driver, put him in the carriage. And they went all the way down to where the summer palace was. And Ahab got out of the carriage and he walked through the vineyard. But as he walked through the vineyard, his eyes made contact and fear must have struck through the very core of his body. It wasn't a lion waiting to prowl. It wasn't an army waiting to, waiting to condemn. It wasn't some strange or scary monster. It was one man, Elijah. Because God said to Elijah, Elijah, go to Naboth's vineyard, for you will confront King Ahu. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishabite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? 
Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And God said, or Ahab said to Elijah, when he saw Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. Elijah spoke these words to Ahab. To Ahab. Ahab heard of his punishment. He heard of the payment, but there was fear. And he actually tore his clothes and got under ashes, and there was a sense of remorse. And so God saw that and said to Elijah, Elijah, I am going to withhold punishment, but only for a time. It was three years later that Ahab met an arrow of death. Three years. You might ask, where is God? Is God blind? Does He not see? Has He not heard the blood of this family, this innocent family crying from the ground? Does God not care? Is God unjust? Why does God allow these things to happen? But I want to say to you, as Elijah's words were so very true, there is a promise of payday someday. It is foolish for any man or any woman to think they can do whatever they want and expect that God is going to turn a blind eye. Because in the foundations of the universe, there is written a law of sowing and reaping. As we saw in Proverbs, dig a pit, you will fall in it. Roll a stone, you will be hit with it. You cannot sow in wickedness and expect not to reap the wickedness that you've sown. It is impossible for any man, woman, boy, girl, human to escape the judgment of God. And we so easily think that God is just a loving God. Certainly He wouldn't punish anyone. If God is righteous... If God is just, you can take it to the bank. There will be payday some day. For Ahab, it was three years later. Here's how it happened. Jehoshaphat came to him and said, We must go fight in, in, in uh, Ramoth-Gilead, and, and I want you to fight with me. And so they decide that, that, that in their plan, Ahab was going to dress not as a, not as a king, but as a, as a servant. So he puts on his armor and he dresses to where he's not recognized as a king. And as the scripture records it, a stray arrow pierces his armor right here. And shortly thereafter, he dies. But do you not think that for three years before that event, every time he heard a dog bark, every time... He walked around a dark corner. The guilt and the pressure of knowing that the prophet said, you will pay for this man's blood, was at the very back of his mind. Do you not think that living under the guilt of judgment is perhaps worse than the judgment itself? I have to tell you that I recently talked to a friend of mine, and in, 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 in our conversation I was asking him about about a certain situation, and, and he told me these words. He says, he says, the people we're talking about live in constant fear. Constant fear. 
They can't go to the store without fear. They can't go to the doctor without fear. They can't come out of their house without fear. They are in constant fear. And the weight of that fear grips them and controls their very life. And I have to tell you that that must have been Ahab, at least for a period of time. I suspect, though, after a period of time of not finding judgment, Nahab, or excuse me, Ahab must have softened just a little bit, perhaps. But there will be payday some day. So what about Jezebel? For Jezebel, payday happened 20 years later. The Bible tells it like this in 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu, 20 years later, Jehu is riding to the palace where Jezebel is living. And as he's riding to the palace, he's seen. And so the palace sends messengers out to ask, are you here with good news? Are you here with bad news? And all he says is, you're either for me or not. Get in line. And that happens a few different times. And so Jehu finally gets to the palace. And as, he's, as he pulls up into the driveway or, 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 or sort of, you know, in the front of the palace, Jezebel opens the doors of the second or, or the windows of her room up top. And she yells down, Jehu, are you here with good news? Are you here with bad news? And all he says is, who up there is with me? And a couple of eunuchs say, uh, we are. And he says, throw her down. And without even thinking, they push Jezebel out of the window, her own servants. And as she falls down to the ground and hits the ground, the word of the prophet came true. Jehu then rode, rides over her, parks his, his, his chariot, goes inside to eat. And after a, a meal, he says, you know, y'all better go take care of that wicked woman Jezebel. Well, they go out and come back in short order and they say there's nothing left of her except for her head, her hands, and her feet. Get this, the dogs have eaten her. Just as Elijah said would happen. Now, it took 20 years for this judgment to come. 20 years. But here's what we know. We do not sow something if we're not expecting to reap out of what we sow. We must understand that no man can live apart from God and then somehow expect that God is just going to overlook their transgression. This is a message that we don't want to hear today. This is a message that doesn't play well. In fact, if this went on YouTube and people listened to it, I promise you it would be dislike, 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 dislike. Why? Because we want a God who just loves us and cuddles us and coddles us and cares for us. And we can live however we want to live without any, any expectation of God's judgment being cast. But that's not God. And God is not a two-faced God. God is a just God. But He's a God who also is loving. And so, how does this work together? It works like this. God has said, what you reap, you will sow. But, if by faith you believe in Me, if by faith you accept the sacrifice that I've made through Jesus Christ, you will not reap what you sow. My Son will reap what you sow. And My grace will forgive you. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. 
But many a man, many a woman, many a child will live their entire life expecting that they can just live on autopilot or they can live apart from the will of God or from the, the, the voice of God and then somehow, some way, they're just going to squeak into heaven because hopefully their good has outweighed their bad. But it doesn't work that way. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of God's glory. The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. There's nothing good about death. And the wages or the payment of sin is death. And in the scripture in Romans where it says death, it's not just a physical death, but the payment of sin is eternal death. It's spiritual death. It's separated from God for all of eternity. And for those who accuse God of being unjust, just ask yourself, how is God unjust if He willingly makes a way for you and I not to experience His wrath. And the only thing we have to do is believe. How is it unjust if we see that God gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life? How in any way is that unjust? If anything, it's the opposite. It's beyond just. It's beyond grace. It's beyond mercy. It's God saying, I love you enough that I've given myself for you. R.G. Lee, when he was pastoring First Baptist New Orleans, he was on the radio and he had a public ministry. And there was one particular young man, 19, 20, who would regularly write him letters I believe it might have even been on a weekly basis. And they were prodding and they were challenging. And he, he avowed himself as an atheist. And he would only sign the letters, I am the king of the kangaroo court. Or chief of the kangaroo court. Towards the end of one afternoon, he got a call. Arjali got a call from the hospital. And the call was this, Reverend Lee, would you please come to the hospital? There's a man here who, who calls himself the captain of the kangaroo court. He won't give us his name, but he says he wants to speak with you. He says it's urgent, and sir, he doesn't have long in this world, so you should come quickly. So R.G. Lee gets dressed, and he goes to the hospital, and he walks in, and he notices that there are beds everywhere. It was a different day. This was in early 1900s, and so you didn't have private rooms. You had a ward with beds all over the place, and this man was sectioned off by himself. And so he goes and he kneels down and he grabs his hand. And the captain of the kangaroo court says these words, Preacher, I know that you have a young audience, and I know that people listen to you, and I know that you preach powerfully. I'm not going to believe it, but I want you to say one thing. Will you tell me, will you, will you promise me you'll say one thing to these young people? Will you tell them that the devil always pays in counterfeit currency? Will you tell them this? He said, yes, I will. And he held his hand until that young man of 21 died. As soon as he died, the nurse said, preacher, come. Come quickly. What's the matter? Come, I must wash your hands. We must wash your hands. He was a wicked, wicked man. 
But you see, the world doesn't want to hear that, do they? The world says, you're judgmental. You're just a bearer of bad news. No, we want ten steps to be happy. We want five ways to, 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 to get a timeshare. We want good news because we want a life that is worth living. But can I tell you that there is no life worth living apart from Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the creator of life, the author of life, himself said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it most abundantly. And every day, men and women live their life separate from God, and they think they're getting one over on God. And they write books about how God doesn't exist, and they say, look, I've got my wealth, and I've got my family, and I've got all these things. And they think that because all of these things that they have prove themselves to be successful, that when they die, their eternity is going to be okay. But I have news for you. It is written in the foundations of the earth. That there is payday someday. Someday. And so the call is for you and me to humble ourselves before God and say to Him, God, I need Jesus. I may not understand everything about Him. I may not could explain everything about Him, and I, and I don't even know how it works, but I know that Jesus Himself said that He is the author and the giver of life. And I know that the Bible says, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. And so based on that simple amount of information alone, I believe in Jesus. Now today, you can reject that. You have the human agency. To do that, you can say to him, I would rather have this, or I would rather have this. I would rather keep that which I think gives me purpose. I would rather, whatever it is, I'd rather be a good businessman than a godly businessman. I'd rather have lots of things than, than understand what God means by sacrifice. I would rather have all of the success and all of the notoriety that comes through these, these ways than this promise of one day. You can, make that, you can make that deal, but just know the Bible says that you and I will give an account for everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever said. And as the Scripture says, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Folks, we should tremble before God much more than we ever do. We should recognize that but by the grace of God, He could snuff, snuff us out one by one. There is no one like our God. And He's not an angry and vengeful God, but He is a God who keeps His promises. The Bible says that God has given to His Son the responsibility of judge. How will you fare when you step from this life into the next? First question, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Or are you betting your life that you might be able to get a little more life before you have to do that? That's just like the rich man said. And God said, this night, you fool, your life will be required of you. 
Or have you surrendered your life? And would you like me? 30 years ago, I trusted Christ with my life. And I would not trade one single millisecond for it. Hasn't been all cherries and roses. It hasn't been easy. There's been struggle. There's been frustration. There's been confusion. But I've never been without the presence of God from the moment I said yes to Jesus. Now, there have been times that I didn't see His presence until I looked backwards. But if you ask me, there's no way on the planet I would trade a life with Jesus for a life with anything, including all of the money and fame in the world. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of God than to be a king on planet earth. I'd rather have one day in His presence than a thousand years anywhere else. But see, I believe all that God has said. I'm asking you to do the same. Will you close your eyes and bow your head? In the 1,275 times R.G. Lee preached this sermon, there were thousands upon thousands who God convicted heart, who God convicted their heart, and they repented of sin and turned to Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to do that now. If you're in this place within the sound of my voice and you're apart from Jesus, I want you to understand your condition. I want you to know that these aren't my words. These are the words of God. I want you to know that He sees all. And yet, but God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him, no matter where you've been, what you've done, no matter how bad you've cursed Him, whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but you will have everlasting life. I'm going to ask you in this place this morning, if you, have, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus right now, right now say to him God I recognize that I am lost and I am in danger I recognize that my life is not my own to live so I place my faith in Jesus and God I'm asking you to save me and if you will ask this of Jesus right now he will make you his child and there will be a security and there will be a relationship that can never be broken because it's something God does it's not something you do this morning if you're in this room and you're living a life maybe you've professed Christ but your life doesn't match that this message is is just the same don't think that you can keep living the way you're living and God not see it if you dig a pit you'll fall in it but you know the good news, the grace of God, He is able to redeem and to restore all that's been stolen and all that's been broken. It's by faith that you enter into that. Father in heaven, I pray that in this moment you would, would sweep through our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would, 
that you would so powerfully help us to see you. Just like Isaiah, when he saw you, he said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. God, help us never to put you onto our level. Help us never to expect that you are a weak or inferior God. You are God. Burn this inside of our heads and inside of our hearts. And may we live with that understanding. God's people said, we stand. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Storm Church at storypointchurch.com.